0: Welcome everybody, good to have you back and it's good to be back. Suppose you're having a conversation with a friend, a a family member, a, a co-worker, suppose they said something to you like this, you know there's so many religions and philosophies in the world, it's sort of like we're all at the base of a mountain and in our search for God we all take different paths up the mountain." But the important thing is that we all arrive at the same point. We all arrive at the top of the mountain. What would you say to something like that? Well, try something like this. You might say, that's a great illustration, but can I ask you to consider a different one? See, we're all at the top of the mountain. Because when it comes to asking basic questions in life like, who am I and why am I here? What is life for? What's the purpose of life? You know, really, despite our ethnic differences, racial differences, or our time and place and history, we're all in the same place when we start asking those same questions. So it's like we're at the top of the mountain. And we all say, let's go down to the valley to see if we can get our questions answered. And so we all take different paths down the mountain. And in the valley, we all end up in very different places. This is the third week that we've been talking about the subject of Christian apologetics. If you've been on vacation, quick review. We are assigned by the Bible the task of being ready to answer questions that people have about our faith. Questions posed by friends, questions posed by critics. And what I've been doing over the last two weeks is giving you some simple illustrations that you can use to answer questions that communicate objections, questions, simple apologetic questions points. Now, you know that next week there's no church, right? Because that's Fourth of July weekend. And so, if you watch the video bumpers, you know that's a special kind of weekend for you to get out of here and go back to your neighborhood, right? You heard Mike Lee talking about the fact that just after a couple of years of being a Christian, 90% of Christians say, you know, all my friends are just Christian people. So this is your chance to have a block party, mix it up with your friends and neighbors, start conversations, maybe have some spiritual conversations along the way. Now, if you're like me, and I know I am, that was a test to see if you're with me. When somebody brings up the subject of sharing your faith, I get this kind of guilty feeling inside. Because it's the kind of thing that we talk about in church. It's one of those oughts. You know, you ought to give and you ought to do this and you ought to share your faith. And that's when I kind of think, yeah, I ought to, but I don't know, somehow it just seems like a formidable thing. You know, I think sometimes we just make the whole process harder than it needs to be. So I thought in my third and final time to talk with you, instead of just giving you more and more illustrations you could use... I'm going to anticipate the possibility that you might begin some spiritual conversations this next weekend, and instead, I'd just like to give you four simple tips to share your faith in an easier way. You ready? All right, tip number one, ask questions. It is the best single tool that you can possibly use. In fact, I think the biggest barrier to sharing your faith is when we start thinking of sharing our faith as a lecture we have to give or a presentation to present, and that's when you start to think, oh yeah, what were those scripture verses I was supposed to memorize, and what were all those points I was supposed to have, some facts and statistics, I'm not sure I'm ready to give my presentation. Instead of thinking of it as a lecture you have to deliver, I would encourage you to think of sharing your faith as a whole series of questions that you want to ask your neighbor. A few years ago, a friend of mine wrote me a letter about an experience he had on an airplane. I want to read you part of his letter. Listen to this. He said, After spending several days in Miami, I boarded a plane home and sat next to uh, to another man approximately my age named John. I soon learned John was gay and a member of a Unitarian church, a church that allows one to believe whatever he wants about God. When I began to reason with him about how his approach to God was illogical, John then said to me with barely enough self-control, I know where you are going with this, and it is making me so angry that I just want to scream. Not exactly a successful presentation, right? He goes on. Without comment, I went back to my USA Today. Even though stunned, I still wanted to talk with him about Christ. So instead of debate, I tried another approach. I turned and said, as a gay man, what is it that you want me, a Christian, to know about you? My question totally opened him up. Even though I disagreed with what he wanted me to know, I didn't try to out him, but rephrased back to him his answer to my question. I suppose John no longer felt threatened, for we talked freely the rest of the flight. At one point, he asked if I thought homosexuality was a sin. Yes, I said, but so is adultery, stealing, and excessive drinking. We all have sin we must deal with. We all have rebelled against God. I respect your answer, he said to me. He then told me how an overbearing, legalistic, religious upbringing drove him away from a traditional church into the Unitarian Church. What happened next really surprised me. John then asked me how I became a Christian. I, I was then able to go into detail about how God's forgiveness had changed my life when I was 18. Instead of force-feeding him the gospel, I took a personal interest in his life and then received an open invitation from him to freely speak of my Savior." Now that's interesting, isn't it? Started a spiritual conversation. Started to give his reasons, his presentation. It just seemed to generate anger. So instead of pressing forward, he decided to take a different tack and just ask a question. And it led to a very different end. I mean, when it comes to sharing your faith, Nothing is much better than someone saying to you, how did you become a Christian? I mean, that's what you would call an open door, don't you think? So one of the benefits of asking questions, can I just mention a couple? The first is, questions are non-threatening. Lectures are challenges. Questions are not threatening. In fact, we even have a phrase we use, hey, I'm just asking, right? What harm can a question do? Secondly, questions, well, Unspoken democratic rules apply, and when you're speaking with a mature adult, after you ask a couple of questions, they begin to sense that it's their turn to ask a question of you. And did you notice with my friend's letter, that's exactly what happened? He poses the question, what is it you want me to know about you, and what happens? The guy turns right around and says, now, tell me how you became a Christian. The best way to get an invitation to a deeper conversation is by opening with a question. Third benefit of asking questions is if you do that, people will think you're brilliant. Yeah, no kidding. In fact, I've got a friend who has a policy with his children. He says, whenever we go into a group setting, he said, my kids know there's a rule. They have to go and find a stranger, someone they haven't met before, and they have to ask three questions. Can't come back until they ask three questions. The guy said, you know what always happens? The strangers will walk up to me and my wife later and say, your kids are brilliant. They seem to have excellent taste because they were interested in me. Actually, what they say is your kids are so mature. They are so socially mature. And isn't that true? Because often in conversations between people, we all just try to squeeze in as much information about ourselves as possible. It's a sign of social maturity to be able to say, what do you think? You tell me about you. So one of the benefits is you ask questions of people, and they'll think you have very good taste. When I started doing research on my novels, I thought, oh, boy, how am I going to interview people? I'm taking their time. No one will want to talk. You know what I discovered? You can't stop people from talking. Because if you're like me, nobody ever walks up to you and asks what do you do for a living and what's your job like. So when I would call people and say, I'm working on a book, can I ask about how your job works? People would talk all day long. I would have to cut them off. People would call me back and say, I thought of something else about me. You want people to like you? Just ask questions about them. See, the problem is, as Christians, truth is on our side, so we become answer people. You got a question? I got an answer. You, you, you can, I, can, I can take care of that. I got an answer for that one. So our stereotype as Christians is we don't want to hear what anybody else has to say. Yet yeah, we want to tell you what we believe. We're believers. But we don't want to hear what you believe. In fact, I've got a pastor friend who says, you know, it's funny that we call ourselves believers. We call other people unbelievers. As though we believe things and they don't believe anything. He says, you know, they believe all kinds of things. They just don't believe the same things we do. So instead of calling them unbelievers, he likes to call them the unconvinced. It's good, isn't it? And I'm hoping maybe this next weekend you'll have some conversations with the unconvinced. Simply asking a question breaks one of our biggest stereotypes, which is that we're dogmatic, opinionated, and don't care what anybody else has to say. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13 says this He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. And that's our problem sometimes. As Christians, we can struggle with what communication scholars call agenda anxiety. That means there's a topic we want to get to, a subject we want to turn the conversation to. We have agenda anxiety. But Proverbs says, you know what? If you're talking before you're even listening, If you're answering questions before somebody's even asked one, it's a folly and a shame to you. So if you want to open people up, you learn the art of asking good questions. Socrates said you could teach entirely by asking questions. Socrates said you don't even have to make statements. By asking the right question, you draw information from people. You want to hear some of my favorite questions? Nothing radical here. What do you think? Boy, that's a great one what do you think? Never mind what I think. I like the question, why do you think that's true? That's a great one because, you know, when it comes to spiritual ideas, they're easy to invent, they're hard to defend. The question really isn't, what do you believe? It's what makes you think that's true? How do you know anyway? So, why do you think that's true? And another favorite question of mine is, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? The reason that's a great question is it moves the conversation to an emotional level. You're calling on the person to use not only their rationality but their imagination and emotions as well. That's when people begin to open up and actually talk about what's going on inside them. So tip number one for those spiritual conversations, when you've got that block party next week, be ready to ask questions. Everyone will love you. Tip number two. Talk about Jesus. Sharing your faith. That's the expression we use all the time. What is faith, anyway? Well, can I use one more illustration? This is one you can actually draw on a napkin. You'll find it very handy. If you take a look at the screen, I'm going to show you a Google Maps photograph here of a river. Fictional city, the star, that's not the capital, that's you. Now, you're standing there, and you would like to cross that river. So you say to me, where's the best place to cross the river? And I say to you, you know, it doesn't matter, because you could walk up and down that bank as far as you want. You'll never find a place where one bank touches the other bank. If that was true, it wouldn't be a river. It would just be an inlet or a pond. No, the fact is you're going to have to make a leap. It's a leap of faith. And since you've got to leap, it doesn't much matter where you leap, so just pick a spot and jump. Is that what you would do to cross that river? Or would you instinctively walk around that bank, and when you came to that one point, sticking out into the water, is that where you would leap? Would you, just out of common sense, minimize the leap you have to take? Because that's what most people would do. See, some people talk about faith as though it's the opposite of reason. I don't buy that. I believe that faith is an extension of reason. Facts can take you so far, then you leap from there. But you go to where the facts are to minimize the leap you have to take. You might say, there's no such thing as blind faith. That's called gullibility. There's no such thing as a leap in the dark. Faith is a step in the light. And God gives us light and then says, take the step, respond in faith. Faith is a response to something. So what? What's it a response to? Well, this is Romans 10, 17. It says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, Think about it for a minute. The faith that we hold, Christian faith, it comes from hearing the word of Christ. So if we're wanting to share our faith with someone else, what's that tell you? It means you've got to get to the word of Christ. You've got to talk about Jesus. That's the central topic. That's where we're trying to get in our conversation. The problem is, as Christians, over the years when we're Christians, our faith, it kind of percolates down through our life. It has a kind of a trickle-down effect so that that Faith you first learned begins to influence your ethics and your social views and your your politics. You develop over the years, as you mature as a Christian, what we call a Christian world view. That means you develop convictions about all kinds of topics. And the problem sometimes when it comes time to share our faith is that we bring that entire bushel full of convictions along with us. And we want to talk with people about everything. Let's talk about evolution. Let's talk about abortion. Let's talk about international politics. And let's talk about being a Republican. Because I'm pretty sure Jesus was a Republican. Right? Any topic they bring up, we go after. Because we've got knowledge. We've got truth on our side. We have a conviction about that too. This is where you need to pull in the reins. See, C.S. Lewis... Brilliant, brilliant man, greatest lay apologist of the 20th century. Time magazine did a cover story in the early 60s on C.S. Lewis, called him arguably the best read man of the 20th century. I just, even if that's not true, imagine being considered in that category for a moment. For me, it would be more like arguably has colored in more books than anyone, and I may not even win that prize. Arguably the best red man of the 20th century. Greatest Christian lay apologist of the 20th century. What Lewis said is, what every apologist needs most is what he called a sense of the center. That means the ability to listen to a question or an objection, an argument, and cut through the peripheral stuff right to the heart of it. That's the place to start. That's the heart of your argument. And that's what we have to develop too. We need to know what's worth talking about and what's not. When Abraham Lincoln was a trial lawyer in Springfield, Illinois, he once said, I am willing to concede every point to my opponent except the most important one. Now that's pretty shrewd, isn't it? The problem is for us as Christians, because we develop convictions on so many things, is we're not willing to concede anything. You wanna talk about abortion, let's go there. You wanna talk about politics, let's go there. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You can talk all day long about international politics and get their worldview to line up with your worldview. I thought you were there to share your faith. And that's why we need to keep that sense of the center in mind. You might say what you know and what you don't know are equally important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul once said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Think think about what he said for a minute. He didn't say, I don't know anything else, because he was a brilliant and highly educated man. What Paul said is, you know, when I was with you in Corinth, I made a decision. I made a decision that while I was with you doing ministry, I wasn't going to know anything else. What I was going to know, my sense of the center, was going to be Christ and him crucified. Everything else, I wasn't going to know. What I'm telling you is when you go to talk to friends and neighbors, when you want to talk to people about Christ, you need to decide what you're not going to be an expert in. You need to decide what you're not going to know, because they will bring up all kinds of peripheral topics. And that's when you need to be able to say, I don't know, I don't know what I think about What do you think about that? Great time to ask a good question, isn't it? See, ultimately what we're really trying to do is introduce people to Jesus. Get them to begin a relationship with Jesus. Allow God into their lives and then let God change them from the inside out. To have the same percolating trickle-down effect in their life that he's had in yours. Change their ethics and their politics from the inside according to God's timetable and not yours. Rather than try to persuade somebody about a dozen topics before we ever get to the subject of Christ himself. Tip number three. Talk like a human being. You've all been watching the baseball game or the football game, camera swings by, you see the guy with a banner. He's up there hanging that banner over the edge that says John 316, right? Very famous. I heard about one guy watching TV at home, he said, John 316, how many bathrooms do they have in that ballpark? Now, you might think that's silly, but you know what? I didn't grow up going to church. Maybe you did. When I was 18, went off to college, I'd never seen the inside of a church. Uh, I'd never opened a Bible. Did you ever stop to think about the fact that the notation we use, the indexing method we use for the Bible, a name, John, a number, three, a colon, followed by another number. Did you ever stop to think that that kind of indexing method is unique to religious literature? We don't use it anyplace else. And it's like computer code to somebody that doesn't go to church. When I was in high school, I thought to myself, you know what, I ought to read the Bible. All great Renaissance men have. So I think I'm going to read the Bible. My grandmother had one, big, black, formidable looking thing. I I just pulled it out, crack it right down the middle, open it up, The top of the page it says job. (laughs) I don't need a job. Apparently job advice is included in the Bible. Flip forward a little bit, psalms. (laughs) What is a psalm? I've never heard of a psalm in my life. I, I am utterly confused. Take one of my novels, split it in the middle, open it. You know what it says at the top of the page? Chapter 20. All books say that except ours. Our book is confusing to other people, right? And we are in the habit of speaking in secret code. I had to have somebody explain how this book works to even crack it open and understand it. The problem is, over the years, as we go to church and we learn and grow as Christians, we we learn to use a secret Christian language. We say, justify and sanctify and glorify. It's a kind of a shorthand that we use to talk to one another. truth is, often, using that shorthand, we don't even know what we mean. Glorify. You're supposed to glorify God. What does it mean? How do you know if you're doing that? What does it mean to glorify God? Have you ever thought about that? You know what the word actually means? Glorify. It means to illuminate. It means to light up. Yeah. Here's an ancient historical reference, not from my generation, but a previous generation. There used to be a shampoo they marketed called Halo. Some of you can remember it, and if you can actually remember it, it's an amazing thing that you can remember anything (laughs) because you're that old. But you remember the song they used to sing? The lyric went, halo is the shampoo that glorifies your hair. You Get the idea? What does a halo do behind someone's head? Lights up your hair. Lights up your head. To glorify God means take a spotlight that may be shining on you or you turn it, point it to God. Right now, standing on this stage, I'm being glorified by thousands of watts of light. We could turn them off to save power. You could still hear my voice, but you'd have a hard time paying attention to me. I would disappear into the background. I would vanish. And what we're really saying when we say glorify God is that this is a busy and distracted world You can go through life and never think about God. So what we need to do as Christians is turn the spotlight on God. Illuminate him instead of myself. Make it easy for other people to pick him out from the background. That's what we really mean. Did you know that? You may have used the word for years, never actually thought about what the word means. We talk about praising God. You want to try an interesting experiment? Praise God without using the word praise. Try it sometime. Just play a game of Christian taboo. God, I. ah, oh, shoot. I offer you my. No, uh uh-uh, uh, can't do that either. Uh, you know, you don't praise anybody else that way. Mom, look, I get an A on this paper. I praise you. I praise you above other children. Be praised. It means nothing, right? What, what would you say to a child? You are so smart. That's amazing. That's a terrific job. What do we say to God? Praise God. Praise you. Don't you wonder if God is falling asleep? We don't even know what we mean when we say that. It's become our shorthand and our secret code. You know what we're really trying to say is, God, you're amazing. You're so smart and you're big. You're always a step ahead of me or a million steps ahead of me. That's what it would actually mean to praise God. That's What could actually change you? Because you're actually doing praise instead of using the secret code. See, the problem is we learn to talk in code because it's church. And we understand, we think what the other person means. The truth is, I don't think we even know what we mean. And we've got to talk in a language other people can understand. I mentioned C.S. Lewis a few minutes ago. He was an Anglican. And C.S. Lewis once said, you know, if I had my way... I wouldn't allow anybody into the Anglican clergy unless he could go down to the docks of London and communicate a complex theological concept in a way that the dock workers can understand. If they can't do that, they don't get in the clergy. Now, Lewis didn't say that because he had such a burden for dock workers. No, he had a burden for clergy. See, what he was trying to say is, look, if you guys can't take a complex theological concept and reduce them to the point where someone with no background, no background can understand what you're talking about, you're no good to them. And you may not even know what you're talking about yourself. What Lewis said is, we are translators. That's what we do. We translate the truth of God into a language that other people actually speak and can understand. And you might think, well, that was already done. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. It was translated into English. Now, the Bible has to be constantly retranslated from English into the vernacular because language is fluid and it's always changing. And words that once had meaning to people mean nothing anymore. Words are empty boxes that have to be filled with content. So we have got to take what we know from the Bible and translate it into a language that other people actually speak. When you have conversations at the barbecues and block parties, talk like other people talk. Then you connect. And here's my fourth tip. Don't take it personally. I heard a story years ago about a guy that played a round of golf with Billy Graham in a foursome. The three guys went back to the locker room when they were all done. Billy went off someplace else. One of the guys was furious. Threw his clubs down and he said, I don't need Billy Graham shoving religion down my throat. One of the other guys said, Wow, I guess Dr. Graham was kind of rough on you out there today, huh? When the guy finally calmed down, he said, Nah, he didn't say a word to me about religion. I just shot a lousy round. Now, how do you explain that anyway? The guy is mad because he shot a lousy round of golf. How does it get directed to Billy Graham? Why why did that even come up? Well, the idea is Billy Graham that day was just a reminder to him of something that he didn't like, and that's where his anger went. And sometimes we play that role when we try to talk to other people about God. See, you never really know how people are going to respond to you when you try to talk to them about God or about Jesus. Sometimes they respond with joy and excitement and gratitude. happens all the time. Other times, they will respond in stubbornness or anger or even with contempt. But it's not your responsibility, so don't take it personally. Because, you know, the truth is Jesus got all those responses, didn't he? Can you imagine what Jesus had to put up with over the course of his ministry? I mean, here is God taking the form of a human being, and, and can you imagine the insults and the anger and the dumb questions that he had to put up with every day? Can I show you one? You'll see it on the screen. This is from John chapter 8. Jesus here is actually having a conversation with some Jewish people who are very proud about the fact that they are sons of Abraham. They think that they're fine with God just because they're related by blood with Abraham. So John chapter 8, Jesus says to them, If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. You were doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Now, we can only read this. You can't hear it. But if you heard it the way it was spoken, it would have sounded more like this. We are not illegitimate children. You get the reference here? Do you understand what they're suggesting here? In public, in front of everybody. Because the story about Jesus' unusual birth has circulated everywhere and not everybody buys it and when they say we are not illegitimate children what they're saying is but you are now that was an incredible miracle the virgin birth what a remarkable thing for God to pull off and that's what he has to listen to innuendo and insult so how does he respond what does he do well you fast forward and you find Jesus hanging on the cross What's he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Really? You know, the Romans that executed him were professional executioners. They didn't know what they were doing. Sorry, accidentally nailed you to the cross. And the Jews who conspired against Jesus and held illegal trials late at night just to win a death penalty against him, they, they did that by accident. They didn't know what they were doing? What could Jesus possibly have meant? I think what he meant was they didn't understand the deeper implications. They don't really know who I am, so they don't understand the deeper implications of what they're doing. Wow. Would you be that patient? Talk about humility and patience. And the idea here is if if God himself could be that humble and that patient, Maybe we shouldn't take it personally either. Guys, we didn't invent the gospel. We didn't make up this story about God taking human form and dying and rising again as God's way of extending forgiveness to the world. I didn't make that up, and neither did you. It's not about us. So if people don't respond the way we want them to respond, I think we need to be patient and kind and humble, at least as patient and humble as Jesus was. Maybe the best way to close this off, this whole three-part series on apologetics, is just to show you the verse that I began with. 1 Peter 3.15. Remember seeing this? But in your hearts, Peter said, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Can I point out something here? Peter assigns the task of apologetics Be prepared to give an answer. But did you notice he doesn't say, Be prepared to answer every scholarly objection. Be prepared to respond to every scientific challenge. No. What he tells you is, Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. He assigns the task of apologetics and brings it down to our level all at the same time. What makes you different? What makes you a positive person? Yeah, I know some of the things you've struggled with. What gives you hope? What keeps you going? See, in this kind of a world of pain and suffering, those are the sort of questions people are going to ask you. Peter says, those are the ones that you want to be prepared to answer. And what you want to learn to say is, have you ever read the life of Jesus? Let me close this in prayer, okay? Thank you, Father. You are amazing. You are so smart, so big, so powerful, and so beyond us. And so we marvel at you and just tell you how great you are. We thank you. We pray for wisdom. And this next week as we take the church outside the church, we pray for grace and favor with anyone that we talk to. And as we ask those questions, make conversations happen. Give us a chance to share our faith with other people. Thank you, we pray in Christ's name, amen.